Amen. Isn't it good to hear how God's been working in other people? Yeah, that's encouraging stuff, and we want to keep that going. Okay, last Sunday we looked at Reformation history in the English-speaking world, as it was Reformation Sunday, and kind of opened it up for uh, Ask Anything, and we kind of surveyed that. I'll leave a bit of time open if there's any loose ends to, to discuss from there. And if not, or once we're done that, then we can move into uh, where we left off in our confession booklet. So any questions on what we discussed? Sean? Yeah, anything. Did you pack a lunch? <laughs> Sean's question is what is the difference between Anabaptists and Baptists in the Reformation? And that's a, a great and a loaded question. Uh, I did not pay Sean to ask that question, but it actually is relevant to something uh, in the sermon this morning. So this is maybe a helpful backdrop for that as well. Where does one start? The Reformation happened in a context in Europe where there was major upheaval in society, which actually made the Reformation possible. So things like the printing press were changing the way people gathered information. Um, we think memes are a new thing, and they kind of are. People didn't send each other memes on WhatsApp or Signal back in the day. But pamphlets became a very effective way of communicating things in cartoon form. And so people could spread ideas, even for illiterate people, very, very quickly in kind of comic form. Uh, and then, of course, there was a, a major advance in reading and writing because of the printing press. So sometimes we wonder, well, why, why do we remember Luther and Calvin, but... Wycliffe and Hoos were saying the exact same things 200 years before. Why don't we remember them in the same way? Uh, and I think that's just in God's providence. It was in Luther's time that the printing press was there. All his books were across Europe in about two weeks. Okay? And that was completely impossible in the time of Hoos or Wycliffe. So the speed at which information could travel had advanced very, very rapidly. And it only took a matter of months before Luther's pamphlets and his books were in England. Okay? And then at a pub called the White Horse Inn, there's a podcast named after it, uh, a group of Anglican bishops got together and they would discuss Luther's writings. It's like Matthew Poole, William Tyndale, uh, Nicholas Ridley, these guys would meet and discuss Luther's writings. And so that wasn't possible in the days of Wycliffe or Hoos, right? So... There's all kinds of change in society. Um, even politically, we're shifting from what was the Holy Roman Empire, where Europeans saw themselves as part of the Holy Roman Empire and their nations were kind of like states or provinces. A sense of national identity started to take root. So people started, before the Reformation, people thought of themselves as Christians. In this time, people started to think of themselves as being German or French or Spanish, and that was a complete monumental change in, uh, in mindset. So there's all this kind of foment, all this kind of upheaval in society, 
Okay, and, and that's why I frequently say to people who think, oh, it's never been as bad as it is now, pick up a book of history. <laughs> it's, it, it's been much worse. It can be much worse. We're living in abnormal times for sure with our own abnormalities, but this is not the worst it's ever been, even by a remotely close. <laughs> There's been these periods of upheaval. So everyone's kind of feeling this sense of upheaval and unrest all across Europe. And what the reformers were interested in, so like Luther and Calvin, they were self-consciously interested in not inventing anything different. They were self-consciously interested in going back to the scriptures, going back to the church fathers, and Luther, in his disputation at the Diet of uh, Worms, was very intentional about quoting the church fathers. Not because he thought they were ultimately authoritative, but to say, this isn't new. Okay? This is Augustine, this is Athanasius, this is Tertullian, this is Jerome, this is Clement, this is... I'm in a long line of people who thought this way. We have forgotten it through the medieval age. So they were very interested in retrieval work. Okay? Back to the sources. Back to the scriptures, back to the fathers. Um, they were reformers. They were not revolutionaries. They were not interested in tearing everything down. Okay? And, and actually, Luther especially, once people started to catch his vision, you had people that wanted to move much, much, much faster than Luther wanted to move. And Luther said, nope, let's go slow, because who knows how many people we might get on board if we just go slow. Okay? We don't have to take all the statues of Mary down today. Okay? Let's do this slowly. And so the reformers were very interested in fixing the church. They did not want to start a new church. They didn't want to start something different. <laughs> they wanted to fix the church in Europe. But when you are living in turbulent times, radical people come on the scene. Um, and you had, uh, this will, we've discussed this at Men's Theology, um, and this might surprise many, but the early Anabaptists were violent and radical revolutionaries. They were the blue-haired campus feminists of Europe at the time. We tend to think of Mennonites today as very conservative, subdued, and I'll get to how that happened. But the early Anabaptists said, okay, sweet. Things are changing. That means everything can change. Okay? Everything's up for grabs now. We don't have to respect church history at all. We can do whatever the spirit of the age dictates. Um, and so the early Anabaptists were not so interested in going back. They were interested in destroying anything that looked like tradition. Okay? Because if Rome was doing it, it was automatically wrong. Okay? And Rome agrees with us on the Council of Nicaea and the Apostles' Creed and everything. Therefore, that must all be garbage to be discarded. Okay? So the Anabaptists said, all the creeds, all the confessions, any way of writing down your theology is Roman, it's papist, it's garbage. We're doing away with creedal theology. Well, once you do away with creedal theology, there's no guardrails, and you can do anything. Um, and they arrived at their position on baptism through kind of a biblicist route, which we'll just hold that for now. But basically, their project was revolution. 
It's all garbage. All church history is garbage. Uh, and in fact, you had the restorationist types. And we still have restorationist churches today. Church of God in Sardo. And then in brackets it says restoration. Okay, that was all Anabaptists at one time. And essentially the thinking was, the church has become so corrupt, the church has become so vile, so tradition-bound, so idolatrous, there actually has not been a church on earth since Acts 28. The church disappeared with the apostles. There's been individual Christians here and there. But there has been no church. Good thing we showed up and started the church. Restarted it. Okay? So the Anabaptist restorationist or kind of revolutionary mindset was a restoration movement. Everything from the past must be discarded. And not just discarded, but tonight. It, it, all, it needs to be gone today. And we're going to be pure biblicists, which has its own set of problems. Because if there's no guardrail on your <laughs> interpretation of Scripture, you can make individual verses do whatever you need them to do. Creeds and confessions are very helpful guardrails. So if you want to look at the, the posture towards tradition, in the Roman Catholic Church, you'd say the Pope, tradition, and Scriptures are all equal legs on your stool of authority. The mainstream Protestant reformers said sola scriptura, scripture alone. Okay? Scripture alone is our final authority. But there's lesser and helpful authorities like the creeds and confessions. We're not trying to start anything new here. Okay? So we will respect tradition. It's a second tier, but it's a helpful guide. Okay? So a respect for tradition, uh, a respect for that tradition even has authority, but not ultimate authority. If there's... If there's a difference between Scripture and tradition, the tradition must conform to Scripture. And the Anabaptist uh, wing said tradition is just out altogether. And then radical things started to happen. And again, some of you have heard this story. Some of you may have not. Um, with this revolutionary fever, kind of a, a, a certain type of millennial eschatology came with it, which meant they were living in the last days, which means we're running out of time. We have to take cities violently by force and kick the Lutherans and kick the Catholics out because Jesus is going to turn, like he's, he's knocking at the door. He is <laughs> right here. And so there was an incredible impatience that happened. And there was a city in Germany by the name of Münster. I've told this story. I love this story. It's fascinating. Who's heard of the Munster Rebellion? Okay, some of you have been around me for a while. Okay. I promise you, you did not learn this at SBC. Okay. I, I will write a check for whatever amount. You did not learn this in Mennonite history. Um, the Anabaptists, led by a Dutchman by the name of Jan Matisse, and there was another Jan, and I forget his name, and then another uh, prophet called uh, Melchior Hoffman, these were the Zwickau prophets, these, these prophets that were receiving, and it's, it's weird how it fits on today, right? This eschatological fever, Jesus is right here, and, and with that, God's starting to speak to prophets again. Good thing we're here, right? And so these three men, these Zwickau prophets, took the city of Munster by force um, and set up an Anabaptist theocracy, in this town. And this sounds, I know, bizarre, because aren't Mennonites pacifists? We'll get there. Okay. 
um, they took this city by force. And Germany was largely Lutheran at this time. And so the mayor was Lutheran. Uh, and they said, okay, well, this isn't good. Uh, we're going to wall this city off now. And we're going to embargo it until these guys come out and put them in jail and long, you know, whatever, back to normal. Um, and so they wait them out. They starve them out. And now people are starving in the city of Munster. Okay, this isn't good. Uh, and because of chivalry, the men died first. Make sure the women and children have food. So the men started to die first, which was actually great for Jan Matisse because he got special dispensation from God that he could take all these widowed women. Okay, so now you have polygamy <laughs> that's happening in here. You have special revelation. You have millennial fever. This is going bad in a hurry. And the Lutherans don't know what to do about it. Okay? So the Anabaptists had a way of making sure that the Catholics hated them and that the Lutherans hated them because they were violent revolutionaries. Um, and finally, the civil authorities got together and they brought two cannons close to the city to say, we mean business now, you guys need to get out of there. Um, and I always forget the names of the cannon, but it's one of these things, only, this could only happen in church history. Um, Satan and Satan's mother? No? The devil and the devil's mother. There we go. So these two cannons, this is like the, <laughs> the medieval version of nukes that they're bringing in there. You Anabaptists have to get out and give up authority. And they didn't. And it, it, there was it, cannibalism. There was polygamy. There was bizarre stuff. And so you can imagine what the Lutherans are thinking about this Anabaptist movement. Okay? And if you've been in the Mennonite world in the last 50 years... And you read the messenger, and there's, well, why are there all these reconciliation movements between the Lutherans and the Anabaptists? Like, what? Because, like, Calvin and Luther and Menno Simons, they were all, no. Calvin and Luther were largely on board. Menno Simons was later and doing something quite different. They were not in lockstep. So if you read in the Lutheran Book of Concord, they'll talk about atheists, anarchists, and Anabaptists. That's one category of people. Okay. Um, they do not like the Anabaptists. They have never forgiven Anabaptists for that revolutionary fervor that gave all Protestants a bad name. Finally, and I won't tell the whole story, James White does a, a history on this. It's great. Uh, it ends up uh, a scrotum gets nailed to the city door, which is kind of neat. Um, <laughs> and finally, these three ringleaders uh, get strung up at the end of all of this and put in cages and hung off the church steeple. Those cages are there today. Okay? This is a memorial. <laughs> Don't do this. Okay? But these little pockets of revolution were popping up all over Europe. And there was one, I think in Leiden, in the Netherlands, uh, where Peter Simons got killed, Menno Simons' brother, in one of these revolutions. Um, and that's what got Menno Simons involved and says, this is not the way. Violence isn't the way. Revolution isn't the way. So he came and was kind of like a calming, let's just take a deep breath. He was kind of the father figure that the Anabaptists very desperately needed to settle down. The, the direct revelation stopped. The millennial fever stopped. Um, they got normal-ish. But the suspicion of articulate theology has never left the Anabaptists. I think we heard about some of that this morning. That it's still there. 
anyone who is precise in their theology is suspect. Okay? They're probably not spiritual. Okay? They, they know far too much. That's, that's not very yeslich. Right? Not, not very spiritual to know too much theology, to hammer it out too much. And so there has been a very different approach. Anabaptism has always been seeped in pietism, which sees the Christian life not so much as public and objective. Pietism makes an inward turn. The Christian life is spiritual. It's almost Gnostic, right? Um, and there are pietists and other, the Methodists are largely pietistic, and, and some Lutherans have become pietistic. But that's deeply entrenched in Anabaptism, is the Christian life is about feelings. Um, it's about, you know, e- yeah, emotional compulsion, personal privacy, right? Um, rather than that this is public. Like, Christ is Lord everywhere. The Anabaptists took a withdrawal method. The world is beyond saving. The world is not being redeemed. Christ has not reconciled all things to himself. Christ has reconciled human souls to himself. Okay? He's reconciled human souls to himself. So what really matters is that our soul goes to heaven when we die. And many of us probably grew up, that was basically the Christian life, right? See to it that you get on the life raft, that your soul goes to heaven when you die. But the earth isn't Politics, for sure, you just completely withdraw from anything political uh, and so forth. And so, uh, it's actually an Anabaptist historian, a man by the name of Thomas Finger, called, and he says this proudly, like, yeah, these are my people. He called the Anabaptists the radical left wing of the Reformation. It actually, technically speaking, wasn't part of the Reformation. It was something different, because they were not interested in reformational theology or a reformational approach to life, okay? They were on a different project altogether. Now, as Christians have talked and somewhat come together, they've picked up on more evangelical kind of things that you'll often see now in Mennonite circles. But the roots of Anabaptism are very suspicious of Reformed theology and of precise theology in general. And part of what happens when you get rid of all the creeds, all the confessions, all the church history, uh, you have a guy like Menno Simons himself, who was a mature figure, who denied the humanity of Jesus Christ. Right? Part of that Gnostic pietism. How could someone with human flesh be holy? After all, the physical world is garbage. It's all going to get burned up. And it's just souls that go to heaven. So, so why... This incarnational approach to Christ even was suspicious. So Christ had, uh, he calls it heavenly flesh. It looked like he was a man, but he wasn't actually, because man is irredeemable. Your soul can be redeemed, but man is, is irredeemable. And then we'll get, I see another hand. I'll get to the, the Baptists in England. In the Say that again? Menno Simons. He didn't deny the divinity of Christ. He denied the humanity of Christ. So he would say in an orthodox way that Jesus is the Son of God. And that, so far, so good. But he denied that Jesus could be a man. Because this world and human bodies are so corrupt, it would be unfitting for God to take on human flesh. It's irredeemable. Right? The main thing is that your soul goes to heaven when you die. And everything here is burned up. It's garbage. 
Okay, now the Anabaptists did get to believers' baptism, that baptism is for believers only. Luther and Zwingli were thinking about it until the Anabaptists showed up. And at that point, baptism is off the table. We are not going to be associated with those people in any way, shape, or form. So it just, we're not, we're not talking about it. Okay? The English Puritans were removed a little bit by time. So the, the Puritan movement came out of, last week we talked about the Church of England getting batted back and forth so much between uh, Reformed and Catholic uh, leadership. And the Puritans were those who wanted to fully reform the Church of England all the way. They, were, they wanted a purer church, right? The Puritans is how they came with their name. Uh, and the Puritans were not interested in believer's baptism, at least the first generation not. They kept with the, what was universally practiced at the time, which was infant baptism. But probably two or three generations after that first round of Puritans, um, they said, well, when Scripture and tradition collide, we want to go with Scripture. They were careful. We don't want to just get rid of traditions. For, let's think about this. But you had a man by the name of John Owen. Has anyone heard the name John Owen? Puritan theologian. He's called the, the English John Calvin. Okay. John Owen remained a Pado baptist his entire life. But he did work on covenant theology that set all the seeds in place for believers' baptism. And maybe don't need to get into that right now. But he did his covenant theology in a very precise way that set the, the wheels in motion for the next generation of Christians to say, well, if that's the case, then what carries over from the old covenant to the new covenant, uh, the circumcision of little boys in the Old Testament does not correlate to baptism in the New Testament. It correlates to the rebirth in the New Testament. So circumcision is a symbol of being born again. It's not a symbol of baptism, which means now the only proper recipients of baptism are those who have been born again. Okay? So this is like mid-1600s that this is really getting, so like 120, 130 years after the Reformation started, um, probably the second or third generation after the Puritans started to arrive at that uh, position. But they got there quite in a different way, uh, and we've got the second London Baptist Confession, which implies there was a first one, in 1644, addressed to the king, and he says, the reason we're writing this is so that you, pe some people charge us with being Anabaptists, and it is our solemn duty as loyal citizens to let you know we are not, okay? We are reformed men, all the way, we're not parting with ancient Christology. We're not parting with all ancient Trinitarian theology. We're not parting with the Reformation on the Gospel, Sola Scriptura, anything. We think we just figured out a better way to do covenant theology, which means we're going to baptize believers only and no longer infants. But they, that's a very different way of getting there because if you go ask uh, an Anabaptist about their covenant theology, they what? Right? They, they didn't care about that. So it came about, the, the Anabaptist approach was just a pure Biblicist route. You know, well, show me in the Bible uh, where 
where you baptize a baby. But the debate isn't actually that simple, right? Um, because both sides will read into the silence of household baptisms. Both sides will read their position into the fact that the adult converts in the New Testament are first-generation converts, and you don't have second-generation Christians getting baptized. Everyone's reading their presuppositions into that. A Baptist looks at a household baptism and says, well, it doesn't say there was babies there. And the Presbyterian will say, yeah, but it doesn't say that there wasn't. <laughs> right? We're both assuming things before we get to the text. The genius of covenant theology is saying, no, no, this corresponds to this, not to that. Okay? Circumcision is a sign of rebirth, not of baptism. So we're going it, to... It's a more thoroughgoing, more comprehensive way of arriving at believer's baptism. So just as much as Catholics and Lutherans and Methodists and Anglicans and Presbyterians will baptize their babies, it looks the same to your eyes, but there's different assumptions happening about the theology of what they're doing among these different groups. To Baptists and Anabaptists, you're baptizing believers, and it all looks the same with your eyes, but something different is happening theologically, the work that you got there, and even what, what are we actually saying here with this baptism. So it's a, it's a different approach. The practice, of course, is the same, right, between the Anabaptists and the Baptists, but the theology that got there and the theology of understanding what's happening while we're doing this is, is different. Um, so that's maybe not a very quick and dirty answer to history, but you... I don't like isolating particular doctrines from how people got there because it helps us to understand the thinking. So that's why I often, maybe to a fault, I try to nest these conversations in history so we understand how people got there and why the Lutherans still have not forgiven Mennonites. Okay? Even though at this point they probably should because the Mennonites after Menno-Simons were a different breed of people than the Anabaptists were at the beginning. It's probably time to move on. Um, but Anabaptists love the victim mentality that they have no idea why the Lutherans picked on them. Well, I just have no... Read your history and you'll understand. And I think for the Lutherans now too, it's 500 years, it's, we, we can move on. Okay, that's... Further, okay, first of all, did I answer your question? Does that help? Okay. Okay. Anyone else? Discussion that comes from that. For whom is this brand new stuff? No? Uh, ish? Okay. Okay. Uh, Keith and then Tim. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a prison for Anabaptists in Lutheran Germany. And I forget... I forget the name. There's one Anabaptist martyr there in particular that, whose name kind of stands out in history, and I just can't remember his name. But yes, that was the case. Lutheran Germany was not friendly to the Anabaptists. And again, we talked last week about the Peasants' Revolt, and how Luther got so angry that they were using his name in this war, that was to a large degree Anabaptists mixed in there, which also 
said, you guys don't understand what we're doing. <laughs> You're doing something different. You're doing something radical. We're trying to fix Europe. We're trying to fix the church. We're not trying to start warfare and revolution. But Luther got very sour about the Anabaptists. And because he was Luther, of course, he overstates everything. But, <laughs> but he had a point. The Anabaptists were not good people. Yeah. Uh, Tim. Okay, did everyone hear Tim's question? So the printing press ended up being a, a key piece of the Reformation. Are we going to see the internet similarly in 500 years' time? I haven't been to 500 years from now, so I can't say for sure how it looks. My guess is yes. Um, I think history would encourage us to not reject technology. Technology is a tool, okay? Nuclear fusion, fission, can heat a city or destroy one. It's a tool, okay? The printing press got out lots of garbage, <laughs> and it got out Luther's tracks. The internet has lots of dark and garbage corners, and I'd say in terms of reformation, in terms of my own personal reformation, would not have happened without the internet. I would not have found... John Piper, I would not have found John MacArthur, I would not have found R.C. Sproul in my local church library. Wasn't going to happen. I needed the internet to find the old paths. So for me, the answer is yes. <laughs> the internet is a tool of reformation. I think we're going to say that more broadly. I've talked to lots of people here that during COVID, oh, I started listening to Vody Balcom sermons. They were really good. Oh, I started listening to Sproul. I started listening to MacArthur. This is really good stuff. Okay. Not possible without YouTube. Okay. So I don't think the Christian posture to technology is technology's evil. We need to farm with horse and buggy. I think the Christian posture to technology is this is a gift from God, and because human hands are touching it, that means some people are going to corrupt it and use it in destructive ways, and other people are going to use it for the building of God's kingdom. So for me, it's a yes to the internet being a good thing, a net good. And there's lots of work to do to avoid the garbage that it also presents its with. Any, I'd be curious on that. Does that approach to technology make sense? Do you think as Christians, are we too eager to embrace and just say all technology is good or all technology is terrible? How, how, would, how would we answer Tim's question? Just a second here. Diane was first.
Great. So see it as a tool in service of Christ. Yep. And, and Diane is, I think, absolutely right. It's a tool that needs to be brought under subjection of King Jesus. Yep. No, I, I would fully agree with that. Jeremy. I tend to think so. Howard. Yeah, and, and I, I would tend to agree. Howard just said he could use technology to listen to podcasts this week that we're up building, right? But there are certain Christians, right, the Amish think, and maybe there's attractive things about the Amish life, avoiding technology, farming the old ways. If you want to do that, fine. But I always got to kick all my Haldeman relatives. They always used to be they'd buy a brand new truck, and then the first sign of spirituality was unscrewing the aerial because they didn't listen to radio. Now in an age of smartphones, I wonder how effective it is. Yeah, I don't have AM radio in my truck, <laughs> right? But, but you have YouTube, so you've got literally everything in your pocket. Uh, it's tough to avoid technology. Agreed. So, so Tina's just saying, as Christians withdraw from things, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The world's really bad, we should withdraw. Okay, we withdraw, guess what happens? The world gets really bad. Okay, that <laughs> No, exactly. I, no, I don't think withdrawal is a successful strategy. I, I would agree. Sean, and then Don. Other copies? Yep. 
Well, and I don't think with something like that, it's an either or. I read lots of stuff on the internet, but if there's a book I've actually read on PDF that I really like, I'll still go buy an actual physical copy because I just like physical books for whatever reason. I like the way they smell. I like the way I hold them. So I, I still, but maybe that's preference. But you're right. No one can pull it down. Once it's on my bookshelf, it, it's there. Dawn. Yep, very good. Very good. Mr. Weeb. Did everyone hear Mr. Weeb? He's asking about restoration thinking today, and it's still around. Okay, restoration thinking is different than reckoning with history and saying, you know what, Martin Luther's a hero of the faith, and I disagree with him here, here, and here. Mature people can do that. Okay, immature people have to say, Luther, love him or hate him. Well, no, I love him, and he made some mistakes. <laughs> Right? Mature Christians can do that. My favorite preachers today, I, I love them all. And there's sometimes you say, I, I just don't see that. Right? There's room for that. Restorationist thinking kind of takes an all or nothing approach to history. Right? So if there's not a perfectly pure church, someone could come in here and they see someone's theology isn't exactly perfect. Okay? Or a new Christian has dragged mud into the church coming in from the outside world. Oh, there's mud in this church. It must not be a pure church. That approach is very destructive, I think, because it doesn't reckon with the real world. And you just end up with a smaller and smaller group of perfect people, which is not warm. It's not evangelical. It's not reformational at all. It's revolutionary, right? You have to, you have to live by my standards today or else it's the fire for you. Restorationist thinking says that the church, until wh whichever prophet you pick showed up here, it's all garbage. So in the case of the church of God, like by Sardo, uh, that particular prophet who started the church of God uh, was in the American Midwest in the mid-1800s, that he came and established the church of God. Okay, uh, And so now we have a real church on earth again. The church of God on earth is restored. There may have been Christians in that interweaning time, but there wasn't really a church for them. They were kind of exiles out in the wilderness. Um, and someone, let's say, like the Haldemans, wouldn't call themselves restorationists, but when the Haldemans came from Nebraska up here and converted a bunch of the Klenyamita to, uh, to the Haldemans, it was very much a pure church mindset. Right? Uh, and they even had a list of apostolic succession from Peter to John Haldeman, right? Uh, an apostolic laying on of hands. This is the pure church. John Haldeman is in the line of Peter, which is actually kind of almost a Roman Catholic claim. And they had lots of missing history, but they still knew that it was John Haldeman was the guy. Right? And, and so these, these kind of cults of personality, and it's almost always personality-based, because it's almost always everything you've heard Everything from the past, it's all bad, and, and here's a prophet 
to come fix it, which is also why I'm very cautious about the charismatic movement because it, it gets very personality-based. Some charismatic figure comes up and uh, invents his own doctrine and then people kind of flock to it and that's, that's not healthy. And this is why, I don't want to overdo it, but why I personally am very zealous to mention dead guys when I preach and teach. Okay? What we're doing here may be new to some of us, but we are trying very intentionally to guide everyone back to the old paths. We are not trying anything new here. We're, this isn't restoration. This is <laughs> reformation. Uh, and I don't know, maybe I'm missing what you're, what you're getting at there. Does that make sense? How correct is that? I don't think very. The age of apostles is done. The apostles who traveled with Christ, the apostles who saw there isn't Christ, and that's one of the tests of an apostle. You saw there isn't Christ. Um, and then they are entrusted with inscripturating the word of God. That age is over. There are no more apostles today. There's no prophets today. There's no apostles today. There's ordinary elders and deacons who are given the apostolic deposit, which is this. So if anyone says, and they come to you with a word from the Lord, and it's not from here, it's, <laughs> it's not the word of God. There may even be some wisdom in there, or a hunch that you might even say, you know, I trust this person's judgment, I'll consider it, but it's not the word of God today if it's not in here. So I would never use the word prophet or apostle for, for any office holder today. We're just ordinary men today, under the authority of God's word. And we've probably gone over. So, any other questions on chapter, <laughs> chapter 10, section 4? Okay. Are these historical surveys helpful? Is this just me finding too much interest in history? Or, no? Okay. I, I, I do think it is helpful. And I will always encourage people to understand where ideas come from. It helps us grapple with them in a more realistic way. So I'm happy to do it, but I don't want to get too sidetracked either. Let's close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for your work in history, your providential governance of history. Lord, and even though we see so many imperfect people and even our ancient heroes and our contemporary heroes are all men with feet of clay who sometimes misjudge a situation or misread uh, or handle themselves in an unwise way. Lord, I pray that that would not unsettle us, but that we would just deal honestly with history. Even our heroes make mistakes. The same is true today. I pray that we would not study history in such a way that elevates people above reproach, uh, but that honestly grapples with your work in history, that we would be okay with the rough chapters of history, uh, that we would find forgiveness in our hearts where our heroes make mistakes and blunders, uh, and with a settled confidence that the truth of your word marches on and nothing stops it. No mistake, no lack of judgment, no doctrinal error, no moral error. Uh, can derail your purposes for your creation. And I pray that you would give us a confidence to keep marching ahead boldly, to stand on the shoulders of the giants who have gone before us, to make adjustments as needed, but to never neglect or disrespect the past. Because, Lord, this too is part of what it means to honor our fathers and mothers, including our fathers and mothers in the faith, that we would honor them, that we would respect them, and that we would build deeper and further from what the work that they have started. 
Amen.